Well, I hope everybody had a pleasant Easter uh, for those of you that celebrate Easter. And this is episode 99 of The Far Middle, which means we're one away from the Magic 100. Hard to believe it's been nearly two years of weekly sit-in sessions with you great constant listeners. People have been asking me what I'm going to do to celebrate episode 100. And my honest answer is at this point in time, I have no idea, but I better figure it out soon. And I look forward to putting something together to mark that special occasion. Well, something we will not need to wait for in the coming week is who we are dedicating episode 99 to this week. Of course, we're going to go with the great one, Wayne Gretzky. I will admit I'm not the biggest Wayne Gretzky fan, and that's because being a Mario Lemieux fan, I was one of many in that group who felt that Mario was denied a certain level of spotlight and detention by the hockey media back in the day, because most of the hockey media was centered in Canada, and specifically English-speaking Canada. And their preference historically, and at that time and to this day, continues to be toward English-speaking Canadian hockey players. There's sort of a hierarchy when it comes to the Toronto-based Canadian hockey media. So you've got English-speaking Canadian players first, which would of course include Gretzky and Bobby Orr and Gordie Howe and Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid. And then probably second would be French-Canadian players. There you've got uh, Lemieux and people like Maurice Richard from the past. And then a distant third, I would suppose, would be the American players like Chris Chelios and Joey Mullen and Austin Matthews today. And then last but not least would be the dreaded and maligned European players. Now, again, I'm generalizing. It's not a huge geopolitical issue to get worked up about, but it is a bias that I think has existed for generations within the hockey media that's centered around Toronto, Ontario. But there's no denying whether you are a fan of Wayne Gretzky's or not that he reestablished the standard for greatness in the NHL. He's still the all-time goal leader, uh, although Alex Ovechkin may have something to say about that soon. He's the all-time assist leader, and he's the all-time points leader. And to put Gretzky's level of ridiculous greatness in context, realize Wayne Gretzky, he has more assists than any player in the NHL history has in points. So that's right, check that out. Gretzky has 1,963 assists. Again, the all-time assist leader. Second all-time points leader in NHL history behind Gretzky is Yarmer Yager, and his point total is 1,921, which is a few shy of Gretzky's assists. Wow. (laughs) Gretzky's also the only player in the history of the NHL to score 200 points in a season, but he eclipsed that mark four different times. Uh, Lemieux, by the way, hit 199 one season, one point shy of the 200 mark. When Gretzky retired in the late 1990s, he held over 60 NHL records. He's the only player in the NHL where his uniform number, 99, has been retired across all teams. And by the way, while we're on that subject, can you name the other two players in professional sports that have enjoyed the same type of honor? Well, the obvious one, of course, is Jackie Robinson in baseball with his number 42. But who's the third player alongside Gretzky and Jackie Robinson? Well, the league-wide retirement happened recently, in 2022, when the NBA retired Bill Russell's number six across the entire league. There was no denying the great one on the ice, and there will be no denying the great one in the far middle. Episode 99 is dedicated to Wayne Gretzky. And we're going to make our first connection to two things that involve Wayne Gretzky, and they represent how certain asset classes have undergone bubble-type inflating valuations. So one asset class is rare sports cards. For the longest time, the rarest of baseball cards was commonly believed to be the Hannes Wagner T206 tobacco card. 
1992, Wayne Gretzky and the owner of the LA Kings hockey franchise, they teamed up to buy that card for around $450,000. And they later sold that card. And most recently, that card sold again for about $2.8 million. So it's not bad when you look at the rate of return over that period of time. But actually, that rate of return for the Hannes Wagner T206 tobacco card, it pales in comparison to Wayne Gretzky's own rookie card from 1979. That card from OPG sold in 2021 for $3.75 million. That just illustrates how inflated just about every imaginable asset class has become under the Federal Reserve's free money, zero interest rate, negative real interest rate policies that have now endured for years. A Gretzky rookie card in gem and condition, it's clearly a rarity, but it's a 1979 rarity. The Hannes Wagner card and the T206 series dates to somewhere between 1909 and 1911, much rarer. But that Gretzky card, it's been hyperinflated in value, much like Manhattan real estate or Picasso's or growth stocks, until recently, of course, because it looks like reality is starting to seep in as interest rates start to climb and asset bubbles start to show some serious signs of deflating. Monetary policy affects everything and can be found everywhere, constant listeners, even in our sports dedication for this episode. But you know, one thing that is certain under the laws of economics, and this has been the case for thousands of years across empires, is that when societies and economies and even the strongest of nations look to take the easy way out and to stimulate their inefficient activities or to sustain the unsustainable ways by printing more money, the one asset that will surely devalue as other assets might inflate in the short term is the value of the currency itself. And here's a warning sign from a couple thousand years ago with the Roman Empire. I think it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make. When Emperor Augustus ruled around the time of Christ, Roman silver coinage was 97% silver. Now, Emperor Augustus mandated that the purity of Roman money be set to the high quality standards of 97%. And wouldn't you know it, trade flourished across the empire when he did so, and it was a period that became known as Pax Romana, or Roman peace. Then things started to degrade over time, both with respect to quality of money as well as the overall state of Roman society in the empire itself. By the time Marcus Aurelius took power, which was around 200 years after Augustus, Roman silver coins were down to about 50% silver. And by the way, Marcus Aurelius is one of the greatest Stoics in history, so read his meditations when you're looking for some inspiration. Anyway, then around 250 AD, the empire went through crisis, and guess what? Roman silver coins dropped to about half a percent of silver, 0.5% silver. We all know what happened after that. The point of this illustration of the Roman Empire and its money over the course of about 300 years shows that monetary policy and strength of currency, they matter greatly when determining and assessing balance of trade, and economic strength, and geopolitical positioning. It was true during the time of the Roman emperors. It held true with the British Empire and the Dutch Empire. And it's true in modern times with the United States and China and the EU. As our government outspends and as government debt continues to balloon relative to the size of the economy and as free enterprise is stifled by regulation and as we continue to print money and set interest rates at negative real rates relative to inflation, you can expect a steady devaluation of the American dollar, and that is not going to bode well for the American economy or for Americans, or dare I say, Pax American. Might be too late before we all realize that. In this concept of the risk of realizing things before it's too late, 
it pulls us into the next connection. Wasn't that long ago when the concept of free speech was held sacred by American institutions and liberal thought leaders? But unfortunately, that's no longer the case in the United States of America. Many who quickly describe themselves as liberal, they often exhibit extreme irony by happily censoring any view or thought that is deemed offensive or counter to their favorite ideology or viewpoint. So institutions that were once the vanguard of protecting free speech, they're now basically the thought police. Universities have speech codes and bias reporting systems that would impress George Orwell's big brother bureaucrats in 1984. And that's quite a change from what used to be the marketplace of ideas. The once noble institution known as the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, it's now become an institution that will only protect certain speech, which means it will refuse to protect speech if it embraces an opinion or a thought that's counter to the desired opinions, thoughts, or political leanings of the ACLU itself. So this isn't your parents' ACLU these days that you're dealing with. And as bad as it is with what are liberals in name only, or colleges, or universities, or with the ACLU, I'm even more concerned with what's going on with platforms and big tech, specifically the big social media players and Twitter in particular. And I don't know if you've been following this, but I've been following and have been very interested in the Twitter files. And the, uh, the Twitter files, for those of you who don't know, they are a series of reports and documents prepared by a group of journalists that have exposed how Twitter before the acquisition by Elon Musk was actively censoring its users based on content. And worse yet, executive leadership at Twitter and its processes, they were designed to collaborate with federal government bureaucrats and agencies to shut down speech that was deemed unhelpful or irritating or counter to what the views and ambitions were of those in government at the time. Now, the biggest and perhaps most egregious example that's been exposed by the Twitter files when it comes to suppression of free speech and news involved our president's son, Hunter Biden, and a series of investigative stories by the New York Post. This goes back to the uh, infamous laptop of Hunter Biden. So in the fall of 2020, the New York Post published a story that discussed the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, which was dropped off at a computer repair shop and never picked up. And the story talked about how the Biden family had been involved with, let's just say, shady deals and how Joe Biden was closely involved with his son's business ventures through the years, particularly those business ventures that were overseas. Now, the main issue, of course, was that this guy, Hunter Biden, was being paid millions of dollars, in fact, tens of millions of dollars cumulatively by foreign companies in where? Well, places like China, our number one major adversary, and Ukraine, where currently we're funding their defense to the tune of billions of dollars. And as Hunter was being paid all this money, it was pretty evident that he wasn't doing any actual work or had any specific expertise to offer. But what he did have to offer, of course, was access to his father, who at the time was vice president of the United States of America. The New York Post runs this series of stories, and Twitter proceeded to do everything it could to suppress them. Now, how did Twitter do that? Well, it removed links to the post reporting. Um, Twitter required warnings be placed on the content that the content might be unsafe. And Twitter prevented other users on Twitter from sharing the story through direct message, which to put that in perspective, that was a restriction that Twitter had previously used for cases like child pornography and other types of extreme cases. Twitter ultimately locked the New York Post account and then did the same for anyone on Twitter who shared links to the Post's reporting, which ironically included the White House press secretary under President Trump. 
Now, these brazen actions, they were directed from and came from the highest levels of Twitter leadership. There was, and I'm not certain if this position still exists currently, but there was a position at Twitter in the executive ranks that carried the title of legal policy and trust. Legal policy and trust. This executive at the time acted as the chief censor for Twitter, and there was also an executive who carried the title of head of trust and safety. So think of those title names, and again, I go back to Orwell and the literary classic 1984, an executive in charge of legal policy and trust, and one who heads up trust and safety. Pretty shocking in fiction, but frighteningly chilling in reality. Of course, the Post story was accurate, and establishments like the New York Times and the Washington Post, they ended up admitting as much 18 months after the New York Post story, and coincidentally after Joe Biden became president. And you talk about being a day late and a dollar short, not exactly a textbook illustration of investigative reporting by the New York Times and WashPo. Maybe their heart wasn't in this story. Okay, so let's take stock of the Twitter files issue so far. First, you've got big tech social media platforms that are actively censoring speech and users by using subjective political and ideological filters. Second, you have application of this subjectivity being applied in the middle of a hotly contested national election, with the election for the presidency getting as big as it gets in this country. And third, most of the mainstream media pretends to not notice what's going on and only begrudgingly catches up when reality is staring it in its face and something like a presidential election has come and gone. Pretty sobering tally, but we're not done because there was one more to add to this tally that, in my mind, is the most troubling of all. And that is, before the New York Post even published its first story on Hunter Biden's laptop, the intelligence community within the federal government was working to discredit information linked to the laptop. The FBI was working with Twitter just before the New York Post ran its first story on the laptop. The FBI was telling Twitter to censor these stories about the laptop because they said it was a hack, an illegal operation by state actors. Um, Basically, the FBI said it was fake news propagated by players like Russia and China to influence the presidential election. Does any of that sound familiar, constant listeners? It's like a steel dossier redox. And if you read a few of these Twitter file reports, you'll see the FBI exercised, and I'm using the reporter's terminology here, quote, constant and pervasive, end quote, contact with Twitter. Basically, the federal government, through agencies like the FBI, It treated Twitter as if it were a subsidiary government entity or a deputy reporting to the FBI for law enforcement. And one of the reporters of the Twitter files referenced it as a master canine relationship. The FBI would make demands for censorship and Twitter would obediently comply without question. The FBI would refer uh, to Twitter as a private sector partner. And it wasn't just the FBI that was work uh, hard at work pushing Twitter to censor. It was also entities like Homeland Security and the State Department who were also involved as well, along with contractors and think tanks that were affiliated closely with government, such as the Election Integrity Project at Stanford. So these weren't blurred lines between government and private entities as much as they were lines that were completely subsumed by government. And there was another aspect to this phenomenon of government controlling speech by subsuming private entities like Twitter, and that was the threat of heavy-handed regulation. Now you see the cause and effect cycle. Government begins to publicly threaten the need for heavy-handed legislation or regulation on social media. And then the private entity like Twitter and social media, they would be subjected to that threatened regulation 
is more than willing to cave to any request or demand for censorship from the federal government to curry favor and to avoid the threatened regulation. Basically, the government gave Twitter one of two choices. You become an obedient partner with us and avoid excessive regulation, or you remain independent and a free speech advocate and wait for us to bring the hammer down via oppressive regulation, sort of the iron fist covered by the velvet glove theory. And what this resulted in when put into practice was blunt, straightforward censorship by government through Twitter. A government agency would send an Excel spreadsheet where it would list accounts to be banned on Twitter with no explanation, and Twitter would obediently ban those accounts. Twitter, which was touting itself as providing a digital public square for open public discourse and free speech debate, they effectively became a deputy or servant or subcontractor for the federal government. As I said, quite dystopian and something right out of 1984. So whenever you see that ever popular catchphrase of content moderation, maybe it's best to assume first that that's code for censorship, at least until you can verify otherwise. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you love Trump or you hate Trump, if you consider yourself a liberal or a proponent of the Bill of Rights and free speech, you cannot like what happened here with Twitter, the FBI, and Hunter's computer. And this is a, a good opportunity to be clear on something that's very important, but that often gets confused and muddled in today's world of information. Yes, I want to connect to the topic of ideologies, specifically conservative, liberal, and leftist. Those are three very different persuasions and ideologies. But today, there is a lot of confusion and muddling across those three, particularly with liberal and leftist. A liberal, in their true sense, will always defend individual rights. You can't be a liberal and be for censorship, even if such censorship favors political outcomes or positions that favor liberal ideology. That would be like saying that you're a nonviolent and then supporting using violence to support nonviolence. It makes no sense and it contradicts itself. Now, I've said in the past that I view myself as a true liberal on social issues, which means I must be a supporter and a staunch one at that of free speech, even if that speech is completely disagreeable to my views and opinions. Now, a leftist is something altogether different from a liberal. A leftist is not interested in protecting free speech. In fact, a leftist views free speech as a threat that has to be either suppressed or controlled. A leftist opposes Western Republican democracy, while a true liberal is a defender of Western Republican democracy. A leftist views America as the problem, and a true liberal views America as the shining light for the rest of the world to emulate. Now, granted, an imperfect shining light, but nevertheless the best thing out there since the advent of civilization. Now, to interchange liberal with leftist, it's wrong-headed. And I can tell you with certainty that my ideological persuasions are a combination of three things. An aspect of conservatism when it comes to fiscal matters. So I'm for balanced budgets and for low government debt. But I'm a classic liberal when it comes to individual rights on social matters. I don't believe government or anyone else should dictate to the individual what they think or what goes on in their home or who they worship or what their persuasions and affiliations should be. I'm a libertarian when it comes to the size and the scope and the impact of government. And when in doubt, that means smaller and less government is always going to be better. And when in doubt, it means local government is going to be better than federal government. And when in doubt, it means a government's role is to be minimized to focus on a few crucial tasks and to do those well. Things like defending from foreign threats, protecting property rights, and maintaining rule of law. 
Now, we all need to think through what our individual true ideological persuasions are and then think about which candidates and parties and politics best match those views. But if you are a liberal and you think that voting for a leftist is consistent with your values, you need to rethink. Either upon further reflection, you realize you're not a liberal as much as you are a leftist, or in the alternative, you come to the realization that the leftist has done a good job of tricking you into thinking that they are a liberal. Let's take a step back and recap what we've covered in sequential logic. So the left develops its ideology. The left and that ideology then infiltrate government and its bureaucracy. Then the left and its ideology and government, they then come together to start to influence and infiltrate public institutions, such as colleges and universities and nonprofits. And then all of those stakeholders, they come together to begin to influence and ultimately control the private sector and free enterprise, and last but not least, the individual. Now, that grinding long-term game has been at play since there was a left, and it has certainly reached critical mass when you look at modern-day America and the West from a number of vital metrics, which brings us to the next connection, one that discusses where a lot of this was first conceived. And I want to talk about a man who most Americans have never heard of. His name is Antonio Gramsci, but who every American is now impacted by. Gramsci founded the Italian Communist Party and spent the last 10 years of his life in jail after the fascist Mussolini imprisoned him. You see, fascists on the far right, they hate communists on the far left and vice versa. Why? Because both are so extreme in their views that they ultimately circle around to each other, and there can only be one in the end. That's why fascists and communists squared off in Spain during its civil war before World War II. That's why Hitler and Stalin, they both knew eventually they would come to ultimate war against each other. And that's why Mussolini viewed Gramsci as an enemy to be imprisoned. The ideological spectrum starts to curve at the extreme ends, and as I said, ends up merging or completing a circle whereby extreme left is not that much different than the extreme right. Both desire complete control over the individual. They just differ on the specifics and the path under which that control will be imposed. Hey, constant listeners, this podcast isn't named the far middle by accident. Okay, now that we laid that out, back to Gramsci and how he is impacting every American. Let me state that although I could not disagree more with the ideology of this guy, I have tremendous respect for how he laid out a game plan to ensure that his ideological views have come to the brink of conquering Western society. Gramsci came up with a genius concept that was a step change from the classic communist and leftist tactics before him. His view was that there was going to be and I'll quote him now, a new order where socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Think about that in the context of today. The guy was a genius, albeit an evil genius. Gramsci is the founding father of critical theory and the culture wars. He's probably the single most important architect of the progressive movement. Now, those executives... At Twitter that we just discussed who were in charge of truth, they should build a shrine to this guy. And all those administrators at colleges and universities who wage culture wars under the various banners, they should pay regular homage to this individual. The countless bureaucrats in government who came from the elite colleges and have been indoctrinated for decades under the ideology of the left, they owe their career journey and reason for being to Mr. Gramsci. Give credit where credit is due. He recognized long ago that the best path to the totalitarianism of the left, conquering the West, 
was the first conquer societal institutions and culture. When you conquer those, government will come along with them, and then it's just a matter of time before the system that you've built with these cohort institutions, it absorbs whatever is left in the private sector and in a capitalistic economy. The last to fall, of course, is the individual and his or her rights, and as the popular quip goes, the individual would first fall slowly and then rapidly all at once. Hey, how about for our next connection, we inject a little bit of hope and positivity to sustain our drive to preserve Western Republican democracies, sort of the uh, kryptonite to Gramsci's tactics. Now, who better to offer that antidote up than the great Ayn Rand? A few words from Ayn Rand will do us wonders inside episode 99, and I'm going to quote from her. Quote, when you notice that to produce, you need to get permission from those who do not produce anything. When you check that money flows to those who do not deal with goods but with favors, when you realize that many become rich by the bribery and influence more than by your work, and that the laws do not protect you against them, but on the contrary, they are the ones who are protected against you, when you discover that corruption is rewarded and honesty becomes a self-sacrifice, then you can assert, without fear of being wrong, that your society is doomed. Now, I'm not ready to surrender to the view that our society is doomed. Maybe that makes me, I guess, a, a hopeless optimist. I certainly agree with Rand that if these symptoms do not abate, then ultimately our society is indeed doomed. But it is not a fait accompli. There's still time. But we need to act with an urgency that reflects the serious nature of the threats to the individual that exists in today's Western societies, which is even more reason to be motivated to engage in that civil public discourse more reason than ever for the far middle, more importance than ever of you, the constant listeners. So let's conclude episode 99 in inspiring fashion. There are still great institutions to be found across these United States. One of the best can be found in Colonial Williamsburg, down in Virginia, uh, where who knows how many tourists each year walk right by this place without realizing its unbelievable history. Now, the institution is the Bruton Parish Church, was founded in Williamsburg in 1715, before there was a United States. Attending members of the church before our nation was created include three gentlemen by the names of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Patrick Henry. They were there and attended that church because Williamsburg in colonial times was the central seat of Virginia government when it was still a colony. And during the Civil War, the church served as a hospital for wounded Confederate soldiers at the battle or after the Battle of Williamsburg. And then energy and industrial pioneer John D. Rockefeller, he made investing into Williamsburg and rehabilitating it his personal crusade in the 1930s, and he helped drive a restoration of the church. And then during World War II, George Marshall convened American and British generals in Williamsburg, Virginia, to plan for the invasion of Sicily, which was codenamed Operation Husky. And while they were discussing plans for the invasion in Williamsburg, they found time to attend service at Bruton Parish Church, and they sat in the pew where George Washington once sat when attending services. Washington, the Civil War to vanquish slavery, capitalism and energy reinvesting into colonial Williamsburg, George Marshall from Uniontown, Pennsylvania, by the way, Look, I know that we are not perfect as a nation, and we don't have a perfect history, but this country is the best, always was, and if we commit to engaging in civil discourse to preserve it, it always will be. 99 episodes down, number 100 coming up. Can't wait till next week, and bye for now.